From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A big how-do to each and every one of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations, like our new one, KXLFM News 101 in Portland, Oregon. Hi to those of you who listen on the Conspiracy Show app. Hi to all of you who listen in on the YouTube channel, Strange Planet. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes, and I thank you for your fine company. Lisa Peace is here, the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, which asserts the idea that a government can never investigate itself in a crime of this magnitude. We're talking about the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Was the convicted Sirhan Sirhan a willing participant, or was he a mind-controlled assassin? And it's fallen to independent researchers like Lisa to lay out the evidence in a clear and concise manner, allowing readers to form their theories about this event. And her book, uh, A Lie Too Big to Fail, the real history of the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy is already being heralded as a magnum opus, perhaps the definitive work uh, on the assassination. Uh, I want to pick up on, uh, before the, uh, the the break, we were talking about the ballistics, and um, you mentioned the Goldstein bullet, and I and I, I want to just re- revisit that, because I think we need to spend a little bit more time on that. Um, yeah, the, the Goldstein bullets are, bullet, are really important, because yeah. the police clearly switched the bullets, meaning there was a reinvestigation in 1975 of just the ballistics, because by 1975 there was so much evidence that a second gun had been fired that Paul Schrade sued the county, CBS joined the lawsuit, and Judge Wenke appointed a panel of, you know, nine uh, experts to, or seven, oh my God, I'd have to go count now. (laughs) They appointed a panel of experts, ballistics experts, to look at the bullets and figure out what, you know, if they were fired from two guns or one gun. That was basically what they were asked to do. And so what they did is they, you know, looked at the bullets and they looked at this photo micrograph that Wolfer made at that weird, you know, after a five-hour gap in his record late at night when no one was in the lab, and they said, wow, he's trying to fool us. He tells us this is the Kennedy neck bullet and a test bullet from Sirhan's gun, but it's not. It's a picture of the Kennedy bullet and the Ira Goldstein bullet. And so they're like, wow, the police lied. They tried to flip one by, and what the panel found was, Although they could not match any of the bullets provided that were wi- that were victim bullets, they couldn't match any of those to Sirhan's gun, but they could at least match three of them to each other, and therefore they said, we only have evidence that one gun was used. And then, of course, that became the only one gun was used, which isn't really what they said. It's like, we can't prove a second gun was used because the three bullets we were able to compare all matched to each other. What the panel didn't do, though, they actually made an inventory of all the markings on all the bullets. What they never did, however, is go back to the LAPD's log to see if those were the same bullets because the Goldstein bullet should have had an X on it. And, in fact, it had no marking at all, so they put a 6 on the base where the X would have been if, if it was the real bullet. With the Kenny bullet, it's even more dramatic. The end of a bullet, a twenty-two bullet, is smaller than a pencil. So look at a pencil eraser and imagine something a little smaller. 
and then try and imagine four, you know, characters on it, TN31. You can be pretty sure that TN was on top of the 31. Well, when the pan, that was what Thomas Noguchi put the last two digits of the autopsy, and he verified that at the grand jury under oath. He said, yes, this is a bullet. These are the marks I put on TN31. So we know those were the original marking on that bullet. Well, when the panel gets it in 75, the markings are instead now DWTN. And again, it can't be DWTN31 because Thomas Noguchi didn't leave room for DN. Right. <laughs> no way. Like I said, it's so tiny, you can only get four characters on it. Well, so if you can't match, the if they can't match switch. any of the bullets to Sirhan's gun, Sirhan's gun. I mean, if right. you can't and that's match funny, the bullets. But that makes sense. If, if he was firing blanks, then of course you can't match any of the bullets because he didn't fire any bullets. No, but my point is if, you can, if they can't match. How can they convict? Well, again, read my book because the trial was all full of those kinds of shenanigans. And at that point in time, no one knew what the police were doing. And again, his lawyers assumed he was guilty. They didn't do any kind of investigation. You should hear Munir go off on that sometime about how shoddily the lawyers, they just, they were so rude to the family. They were so mean to them and just assumed he was guilty and didn't lift a finger to help, and they were all about the money, if they could get any money from the book deal, because Robert Blair Kaiser had promised the defense team some of the money from his book deal if they let him be part of the defense team. And then years later, Robert Blair Kaiser is working in the DA's office and making fun of the buffs. You know, it's like, who are these people? It's well, like, that's the question. Who is Who was Grant Cooper, for example? Because I, I'm right. not sure. Well, and Grant Cooper, at the time of the trial, had you know been a famous attorney here for decades in Los Angeles, and ironically, had even written an article about getting somebody off because you know he had confessed to a crime he hadn't committed, and that's what people say too. It's like, well, Sirhan confessed, so obviously he did it. Well, he confessed because he was told to confess, but also he confessed in court as a joke. To, because he felt the mo- the trial was a mockery, and he's like, yeah, I committed, you know, I killed Kennedy with 20 years malice of forethought. Well, he's only 24, so he's like saying, stop bringing up my childhood and the trauma from my childhood. You know, what I did as a four-year-old didn't affect me in the pantry. That's what he was saying, but it was misrepresented as, oh, during confess. Everybody runs to the phones and, and calls, and it, it wasn't that at all. It was a, a completely exasperated outburst, and I, I explained that in the book. Uh, but uh, Grant Cooper was himself uh, under threat of indictment yes. because in a previous case, the Friars Club card cheating schedule that involved Johnny Roselli, the man the CIA had tipped to kill Castro uh, through Robert Mayhew, who was then running the Howard Hughes empire. And uh, Robert Mayhew makes a big appearance in my book for reasons I'll let the readers figure out. Okay. But... Mayhew connects to literally everybody in the case. Mayhew was friends with the sheriff, Sheriff Pitches. In fact, it was the sheriff's men who were in the pantry before the LAPD got there. And it's very, and it was the sheriff's men who took bullets out of the wall and then evidently disappeared them because they, we never found them again. Uh, and, and Mayhew, uh, and Roselli may have worked together to set up Cooper, and that's actually something I didn't even have time to go into in my book because the book was already so long, but I actually kind of tracked that down. It looks like Cooper was set up, and then I was trying to find out, was he set up before the trial, or, I mean, before they knew he was going to be Sir Han's lawyer or after, and I believe I came, I believe it was after, but again, it was so getting so convoluted, I cut it back from the right. book. Right, but the point here but is anyway, that Cooper... Cooper was pr- pr- under threat of this, of being jailed 
he could have been jailed right. for being in possession of a stolen grand jury transcript. But after the trial is over and Sirhan is convicted, he gets off with the least possible fine. And as I note at the end of my trial chapter, everybody involved in the cover-up got promoted. Literally, everybody got a better position, more money, a private security firm. Everybody got their reward. Even the judge had something at stake. And again, I'll leave people to read the book to figure out what they had possibly hanging over the judge's head. Because he did some crazy things during the trial that I point out. He was not a fair and impartial judge at all. It was really shocking. When I read the trial transcript, and it took me took me like three months to read it because it was a three-month trial, and I had to read, you know, and they talked all day. <laughs> so it took a long time to get through this thing. And I was so angry at the end, and I thought there, you know, there was a book about the trial that I felt after reading the transcript didn't go nearly far enough. So I really tried to hit home how bad the trial was in my book. Uh, we're opening up the uh, the phone lines for questions and comments uh, for Lisa Peace as we discuss the RFK assassination. And uh, the numbers are 416-360-0740. That's in the greater Toronto area. 416-360-0740. And toll free from out of town and just about anywhere. 1-866-740-4740. Again, one 1- 866-740-4740. Uh, who else was arrested immediately? I mean, someone saw somebody coming, going out in handcuffs besides Sir Hansen. Yeah, that was Michael Wayne was, was apprehended immediately. There was another guy apparently named Jesse Greer who appears to have been arrested and then quietly let go. There was yet another man. Uh, let's see if I get the name right. Frazier was the last name. I want to say Terry Lee Frazier, but for some reason that's sounding wrong to me right now. And again, (laughs) look in my book for the actual name. But him, in his case, I really don't think he was involved. I think Wayne was very much involved. And Wayne was lying to people all over the hotel and saying things that were provably not true, claiming to know people he really didn't know. And again, people mistook him for Sirhan. In fact, at the grand jury, one of the people who testified to the grand jury was Harold Burba of the photographer for the fire department, and he described this man walking with rolled-up posters in the pantry before Kennedy went to speak and how suspicious he looked and how he was casing the joint and turning his head left and right and looking around, and, and he thought he was terribly suspicious, and he just assumed that was Sirhan. And it wasn't until a month after the grand jury that the police went back to him. They said, well, we're not sure that was Sirhan. It's like, look at this guy. And they showed him a picture of Michael Wayne. He goes, yeah, that's the guy. And they go, well, that's not Sirhan. <laughs> so, I mean, you can argue Sirhan was even convicted in part based on a misidentification. He wasn't even that suspicious character. It's really, really kind of horrific to think that Sirhan. Now, I want to talk really briefly because I know we're going to get calls here any minute, but super important for people to understand you cannot be made to do something against your will under hypnosis, but you can be tricked under hypnosis into believing a different reality. And I think it's very clear that that's what happened in the pantry, and that's why I argue in my book I believe Sirhan to be completely innocent. He had no idea he was participating in a conspiracy to assassinate Robert Kennedy. He was used by others who knew he didn't know, but they put him in the right position. They triggered him at the right moment. He thought he was back at the firing range at the right moment started firing a gun and, again, firing blanks. And it's funny because in his own hypnosis, he's like, I saw a flame coming out of the gun. He thought, that can't be my gun because my gun has bullets in it, except it didn't. <laughs> you know, 
like I said, because otherwise, that's the other thing. The people who were right in front of him, if he had been firing bullets, Kennedy would have been shot in the front of the chest. Exactly. I mean, it's very clear if he had fired a bullet, he pointed right in that direction and fired. Kennedy would have been hit from the front if he had been firing real bullets. Uh, let's go to the phones, and we begin with Robert in New Hampshire. Robert, good evening, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, hi, good evening. Um, I listen to Zoom Radio uh, on occasion, and it's such a, such, such a great variance of programming. I just want to compliment you on that. Thank you. Now, this, uh, my call is in reference. Robert, are you there? No. Robert? Now, her name was Kathy Fulmer, F-U-L-L-M-E-R. Ah, yes. And the exact quote that was attributed to her was, uh, she was um, just running out in the area, let's say, and she said, we shot him. And a person uh, nearby said, who, who did you shoot? So she said, President Kennedy, I mean Senator Kennedy. That was the exact quote. Now, she was found, Kathy Fulmer, the girl in the polka dot dress, she was found dead um, some years later. Um, and it was widely published, actually. It was in the New York Post. I read that paper every day in, in quite a few papers, actually. And it said, girl in um, polka, it said, polka dot dress girl found dead. I'm sure there's plenty of ways of checking on that. That was in the New York Post. Okay, let me address that. All right, um, Robert, great call. Let uh, let, uh, Lisa address that. Yeah, how would they know her name? So Kathy Fulmer was interviewed by the LAPD, but she was not wearing a polka dot dress. She was wearing a polka dot scarf, and she did not run out shouting that, although there were people near her who thought she said, we shot Kennedy. Now, in my book, I argue that the polka dot pattern itself was assigned to the other conspirators. In fact, we were talking about that coffee urn, and I never got to circle back to that. The coffee urn was right behind the stage, and when the girl and Sirhan went into that anteroom area, that's where the coffee urn was. It was literally right behind the stage where Kennedy was speaking. And guess who was standing there? A big, tall man with a polka dot tie. It's like, and that's, he was the one who directed them to the pantry. So he'd figured out where Kennedy was going, and he sent them that way. You know, he could have sent them downstairs, but he sent them upstairs to the right. Uh, but Kathy Fulmer's death was suspicious, and I, for years I really didn't think she was involved because it was a polka dot star, scarf, and I thought it was coincidence. But then, like I said, the more I, I realized everybody who seemed involved, not everybody, but several of the people who seemed involved did seem to be wearing a polka dot pattern somewhere. And in the police photos, and I've gone through hundreds of them, I have never found anybody in polka dots. I thought, well, that's odd because so many people saw the girl in the polka dot dress. How could she not be in any of the photos? And it's almost as if, you know, somebody went through the police photos and and knew that that was the clue and took out anybody who had a polka dot dress and, you know, threw it away, unless it was obviously the wrong type of dress, like a black dress with right. white polka dots. Robert, thank you for the call. Great dress. call. Was it, Are the polka dots maybe a, some sort of a trigger? No, I, I thought that for a while, too, but I really don't believe that was the case. That's what uh, 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 Darren Brown did in his show. He used it as, like, step one of a two-step locking mechanism to get somebody into the hypnotic state that when they saw that pattern, it would trigger the first level, and then when they heard keywords, it would trigger the second level. I don't believe that to be the case, but it's that would be a hard thing to disprove. But I do think it helped the conspirators find each other because polka dots have never really been formal. It's more of an informal, fun, funky pattern. And 
as I understand it, political events today are very casual. People show up in jeans and T-shirts. But back in that time, it was the Kennedy Victory Party, and everybody was dressed to the nines. This is what I heard from one of the people who was there. She's like, you don't understand. These people really stuck out. Sharon was in jeans. You just didn't wear that to those kind of political events. And the girl's dress was kind of, you know, like a kitchen dress. It wasn't like a really pretty, fancy dress. All right, let's go so to the that's phones. Why uh, let's go back to the phones. Mike is in Mississauga this evening, this morning. Mike, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Good show as usual, Richard. Thank you. I have two questions for you. Um, wasn't there any like film footage of all this happening? And wouldn't uh, the film footage, you know, couldn't there be people identified? And my second question is, how was Sir Hansaran chosen to be this patsy? How did they find him? How? Why was he chosen? Great question, right. Mike. Thank you. Two good questions and two long answers that I'll try and keep short. Um, let me do the second question first because I already forgot the first one. But Sir Hans okay, yeah. has been chosen in part. I, he might have been identified because he worked at the racetrack where uh, Desi Arnaz owned some horses. Desi Arnaz was an anti-Castro Cuban who even had ties to the CIA. There were mob people working there. There was kind of a criminal element in that circle that any one of them could have tagged Sirhan. There was also a naval surface weapons research facility there, and I talk about the Navy's own mind control experiments because they had some pretty extensive stuff going on. And it's possible that when he got injured and he went to the hospital, one of the doctors might have been a Navy doctor goes, hmm, <laughs> good subject for us. Also, back in Pasadena when he was in school, he was studying, here he is, a guy who speaks Arabic and English. He's studying Chinese, Russian, and German. Now, if you wanted somebody who spoke all the major spy languages of the world, that would pretty much cover it. And he wanted to be an international diplomat. So, again, he might have been tagged even before the horse racing stuff. But it does seem like after the injury, his family noted, first of all, he was missing for two weeks, that no one could account for where he went. And then when he came back, he seemed, for the first time in his life, kind of surly because he had never been like that, and he didn't understand what had happened. So that's that. Now, the first question was, do you Where, remember? Why, what, was there any film? Uh, was anyone filming anything? Right. There's lots of audio so there's, tape. Right. There's audio tape, but the, the the reason they wanted to stage the assassination right after he spoke is that is the moment when all the cameras go off. Because the cameras were on Kennedy every minute until the acceptance speech. After the acceptance speech, all the cameras went off. And although they were following him because he was headed towards the media room where he's going to answer the printed press, um, but the cameras were off. They were done for the night, and they did turn back on after they realized shooting had started, but by then the shots had been fired. So there isn't footage of the actual shooting. There's footage of the immediate aftermath. And in my book, I also talk about it wasn't just two people firing eight bullets and seven bullets each or something. It was like, you know, three, four, five people shooting two bullets each and running immediately from the room. And that accounts for why it sounded like an explosion or firecrackers and no one could be sure how many shots were fired because so many were fired at once. And then people ran out before anybody even could process that a shooting was in place. And so they were long gone by the time the cameramen came to their senses, you know, got out of that immediate moment of shock and turned on the cameras. By then they were all gone. You know what, what uh, stands out to me is it's, I mean, this was not... If this was a, you know, a, a highly planned military operation, there are just so many, no pun intended, so many holes in this thing that a, you know, a, a good lawyer at the time mm-hmm. should have been able to get Sirhan off. 
Oh, yeah. If if a lawyer had read, and, and now Robert Brick, I can't even say his name, Robert Blair Kaiser said he wrote a letter to Cooper about the distance issue, which I think is kind of funny because Robert Blair Kaiser also has always held that Sirhan fired all the shots. It's like, well, if you're aware of the distance issue, then you know Sirhan couldn't have fired Exactly. Shots. i got to take a time you out, Lisa. You can't have it both ways. You I'll... can't, if you're intellectually honest, you can't have it both ways. Exactly. All right, we'll take a time out, come back. We'll get to some more calls as well. 416-360-0740 in the GTA. Toll free from out of town. 1-866-740-4740. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, welcome back. Uh, Lisa Peace is with us, extraordinary uh, author, uh, researcher, and her uh, book, A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, uh, being hailed as a magnum opus, and uh, Lisa, a colleague of... James DiEugenio, who has been on this program many, many times, a good friend of the program. Um, repeat, what is the, uh, the, the announcement that, that was made earlier uh, uh, regarding the Truth and Re- Reconciliation uh, Committee? Just give us that once again for those joining yeah. us late. So last night, uh, the Ken- members of the Kennedy family and the King family, in a historic first, called for reopening of the investigations of the assassinations of the 60s specifically the President Kennedy, uh, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and Robert Kennedy. And it's the first time either of the, the families have called for investigating anything but their own family's investigation, if you will. And, uh, frankly, it's, it's it's completely historic. I've had people come up to me and said, but if these were conspiracies, surely members of the family would have spoken out. I'm like, they have! No one is hearing them! And, uh, you know, so that's the problem. So now they're calling for a Truth and Reconciliation Committee, a public inquiry where we can subpoena the, the last living witnesses and get some additional data. Uh, we're pressing for Congress to ask the, uh, the, for the oversight of the JFK Act because the agencies that were supposed to release all their records have not. And there's been no punishment for not meeting their deadlines. And, you know, a law's a, a democracy is only as good as its laws, so it's really important that we enforce the laws we have or what's the point. Uh, so a lot of stuff is in this. It's actually going to be a year-long campaign. So this is the opening salvo. There will be a petition site where people can sign and say, I support this. Uh, we're going to be lobbying Congress all year on this point to reopen these cases. And, again, we want to take witness testimony before people die. There are people who still have information that's never really been officially taken for the record. So this is an important an important moment in our history, and we could save history or lose history, and I hope we can save it. Uh, let's say hi to William in Toronto. William, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, uh, thank you for having me. Uh, I just want to say, uh, Bobby Kennedy, he announced that he was going to challenge... Uh, Lyndon Johnson for the Democratic nomination for the presidency in 68 before about 10 days or two weeks prior to Johnson bowing out of the race. You remember he made that famous right. uh, speech. 
Hey, I Phil, will not uh, seek, nor will I accept right. the nomination, yes. Uh-huh. Now, what I'm thinking, and I've always believed this, I'm not saying Johnson was behind uh, RFK's assassination, but he was astute enough politician to realize that if this pit bull kid runs for president, there will be people who, want, who, who, who won't want him to be president under any circumstances. And that's what prompted him to bow out because his, I mean, if he hadn't bowed out and, and things had been, you know, Bobby Kennedy had been assassinated in, in June and Johnson was still in the race, people would say Johnson became president only because of the death of RFK. Uh, right. And he remained <laughs> president only because of the death of RFK. Interesting point. Great. Um Great yeah, thought. What I, are your thoughts, Lisa? I, I've heard that sentiment expressed, and I have a slightly different take on it. I think he knew he couldn't win. I think he saw that his support for the Vietnam War was his his uh, albatross around his neck, and he couldn't not support the war because he figured he'd end up just like JFK, uh, but he figured his support of the war would be enough to split the party and he knew it was important to defeat Nixon, and once he saw that he probably could not win or could not win with the majority, he bowed out after Bobby got in, because I think he knew, too, that Bobby would win. Well, let's not forget and, Eugene McCarthy. Wasn't it McCarthy that beat Johnson in the New Hampshire primary? Yes, and and McCarthy also beat Bobby Kennedy in Oregon, and yes. they went toe-to-toe over their dogs at the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there, yeah people forget but, Kennedy was no shoe-in for the nomination. Right, but he kind of was because the delegates, uh, the big state delegates were going for Kennedy. You know, it, it was like Bernie versus Hillary. Sadly, you know, she, well, sadly in my opinion because I was a Bernie supporter. <laughs> but, you know, she got more delegates. So mm-hmm. it didn't matter if Bernie had more popular support or more energy or whatever. She got the delegates in the same way the Kennedys were going to get the delegates. And it didn't matter. And in those days, the primaries were even more of a a show trial than they are now. I mean, now they actually count for a little bit more, but in those days, really, the primaries didn't matter. It was about what happened at the convention and the the horse trading, and there were still a lot of Kennedy loyalists at that point. Uh, Let's say hello to Gary in Toledo, Ohio. Gary, good evening, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, hi, good evening. Hey, just a quick question about the role of Roosevelt Greer in the in the assassination, I remember vividly that he was interviewed and uh, uh, had put his thumb in the trigger of the gun to jam it, and uh, being told to break the person's thumb and other things relative to that. It, it provided such um, such credibility to to the one one gun killer. Uh, one person killer uh, because of his popularity as a celebrity was he part of, part of the plot? Oh no! And the same with Rafer. Both of them again. And Rafer made it more clear in his testimony. He said, "I saw this guy firing a gun, so I didn't look around to see if anybody else was firing. I wanted to focus on the gun I saw." And uh, the same with Rosie. I mean, both of them thought this was the only shooter because again, in in the moment. When you see one person firing a gun, you don't look around to see if there are others. You just don't. You want to make sure you're safe and then that the people you love are safe. And for them, that was Robert Kennedy. And so they grabbed the guy and they forced his arm away from the crowd. And that's the other thing. Where they were pointing Sirhan's arm, there should have been holes in the wall 
like in the the back, the what would that be, the northwest corner, because that's where they shoved his arm, and there are no holes there either. So they were all fooled. They were all fooled. They really didn't know what they were seeing because of carefully planned, well-staged magic act. All right. Uh, thank you, Gary, in Toledo for that. Um, I mentioned, you know, rarely a trial, change the parade route. Uh, the other one is... Um, uh, that often occurs is the gunman is taken out. Oswald, of course, which leads me to, you know, the confusion as to why Sirhan Sirhan, the patsy, was allowed to live. Why is he well, still languishing in prison? Right. Uh, first of all, there were people who tried to kill him in the pantry, and fortunately, because Oswald had been killed, a lot of people were saying, we don't want another Oswald. Jessen Unruh actually jumped in the police car when Sirhan was taken away because he wanted to make sure the police didn't kill him on the way to custody. You know, everybody was very protective. And then it, you know, it's like the the more he was in custody, the harder it was to kill him because that looked just like Oswald. Then if he were killed in police custody, it would have looked so suspicious. So there were people who looked like they were trying to kill him in the pantry that, and there were others that were protecting him because that had happened to Oswald. Ah, interesting. So if there had been no Oswald, there probably would have been a dead surgeon. Uh Thomas Noguchi um, performed the autopsy, correct? Yes. And and he his findings were that, that Kennedy was shot from behind. Was he right. not chased out of town after that because he stood by that? You could you can definitely make that argument. Yeah, there was all this kind of trumped up charges about him, and and the timing was such that it came, of course, right at the time of the trial. And so, you know, if he had made and the thing is, I'm not aware that he made any statements that Wolfer didn't make. Meaning, like I said, Wolfer at the trial actually put the gun closer than Noguchi did, <laughs> but it had the how do I want to say? He had told the grand jury that the gun was about an inch away, and he had been pulled aside by John Minor, who was one of the um, people working for the county, who said, oh, my God, you've got to put the, you know, the gun couldn't have been that close. It had to be further away. He's like, I know what the evidence says. You know, it was an inch. It was not, you know, like three feet. And, you know, Noguchi hung tough on that. And in his book, Coroner, Noguchi said, thus I have never said that Sirhan Sirhan killed Robert Kennedy. And he must have made some comment like that to coworkers or colleagues. There are pictures of him in the pantry pointing at the bullet holes. He had to know those were bullet holes. You know, he's a coroner. He's been to other crime scenes. You know, when you've been to enough crime scenes, you kind of know what a bullet hole looks like. And so I think they were terrified that he might kind of expose the conspiracy because he did seem to be a decent and honorable man. And so, yeah, he was discredited in the media, and he lost his job right around the time of the trial. And within a year, it's like all of that was proven to be fake and bogus, and he was back in his job. But the damage had been done at exactly the moment the damage needed to be done. Mm, Funny thing, that. Uh, Thomas Noguchi is still with us, right? I mean, he's in his 90s? Yes, he is. He testified. He didn't testify. He spoke via camera uh, at a conference at the WEX Center last year for the 50th anniversary this right. year, last year. Right. <laughs> what year are we in? Yes, last year. <laughs> 2019, oh, yes. Okay. Uh, how about Cyril Weck? Does he weigh in on this? Oh, Cyril has always uh, agreed it was a conspiracy. Cyril, you know, was a friend of Thomas Noguchi and, 
Yeah, Cyril has been just fantastic on this case. He's been a staunch supporter of the fact that Sirhan could, you know, was not in the right position to have made those shots. And uh, Sirhan, he's reading your book, obviously. So, I mean, he is he. What is his state of mind? I mean, he must. Is he angry? Is he resigned? He's very frustrated. Yeah. He's very frustrated for for the first few years. You know, after this all happened, he assumed he had killed Kennedy because everybody told him he had. And he had no memory of what had happened. So he tried to, you know, for the trial, he tried to invent a motive for himself. Like, why would I have done that? And kind of latched on to the Palestinian cause because he's like, if I'm going to die anyway. I, he, he literally said at one point, I'd rather die and say I did it for my country. And that was kind of his attitude. Like, I must have had a motive. But over the years, he's learned the evidence like the rest of us. He's right. read the books on the case. You know, he... I don't know if he has internet access or if he's been looking at the primary records like I have. I just don't know. Okay, I've got to take a time out, Lisa. Uh, we'll, he's come, we'll come to understand that he was being set up in a patsy. Okay, I've got and to take I a time out quickly here. We'll, we'll come back. Lisa Peace, a lie too big to fail, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Taking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back as we continue to delve into the RFK assassination. June 1968, coming up on the 51st anniversary. Big news. Members of the King family, the Kennedy family, are calling for a Truth and Reconciliation Committee. We could be hopefully, looking at a congressional hearing and a congressional investigation into the four political assassinations of the 1960s, Malcolm X, MLK, and RFK. And tonight we are focusing on the RFK assassination. Let me just ask you before we get back to the phones, and that is your thoughts on this Truth and Reconciliation Committee and the thoughts of the members of the King and Kennedy family. Are they confident that you could get a new congressional investigation into this? Well, one can always hope, and it is not an election year, and that's pretty much the only time you can get anything done is in the off years. So if there was a year where it could happen, now would be the time to get that ball rolling. The nice thing about the call is that it doesn't rely on Congress. Like you said, if we start with a public inquiry, we might do a better job finding the truth ourselves. You know, As I say in my book, I don't believe the government is ever capable of truly investigating itself. That said... The House Select Committee on Assassinations, although their conclusions were weak, the data was deep and rich, and people are still mining it and finding important data. And that's really what congressional investigations can do. If you ignore the report and you go right to the data, it's still a worthwhile exercise. I would just not count the report as being the truth on anything of significance. Usually the report is the cover story. By the way, one of the signers of that is Robert Blakey, who headed the House Select Committee on Assassinations Investigation. And even he is saying, we should have done better. The CIA lied to us. We need a new investigation. That's significant. What about a civil trial? Because William Francis Pepper conducted a, a civil trial on behalf of the King family. I mean, it wasn't covered the way it should have been. But that right. would generate a lot of press attention on the evidence. What about launching well, a, a civil trial? It's something to consider in the sense that I think Robert F. Kennedy Jr. may have legal standing to sue the city over the Sirhan trial. You know, especially the falsification of evidence, there might be a legal opening there. I haven't discussed that in particular with him, but 
it does seem like that would be warranted given what has happened to the evidence in that case. And again, we have a nice long paper trail that proves the, that evidence was deliberately altered. And somebody said, well, doesn't that mean the police were in on it? Were the police in on it? I'm like, no, the police weren't in on it. But they have only Sirhan and an obvious conspiracy. What are they going to do? Go to the public and say, well, we caught one of them. Sorry, we didn't catch any of the others. And by the way, this guy wasn't the real shooter. They're not going to do that. They're going to say, hey, go back to sleep. We've got it all covered. This is the guy. This is the only guy. Go back to sleep, America. All is well. That's how the world works. No one wants to tell the public a bad story. The media doesn't want to tell that story. It doesn't sell. The police don't want to tell that story because it doesn't sell. They could lose their jobs if they're not, you know, catching the right people. No one wants to admit that they utterly failed and screwed up, so they make up these cover stories. And that's literally why I called the book A Lie Too Big to Fail, because once you start with that one lie, that Sirhan alone killed Kennedy, then you have to keep lying and lying and lying and lying, and then you tell really egregious, obvious lies, obvious to anybody who's paying attention, uh, you know, to cover up that initial lie. It became a lie too big to fail. Bruce is in Etobicoke. Bruce, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. You're on the line with Lisa Peace. Yeah, I just had a question concerning his security detail. I mean, Robert Kennedy was a rich guy, and knowing what happened to his brother, you'd think that he would have had this extensive uh, security detail, and if he did, is there a possibility that somebody in his security detail was compliant with this? He didn't have a large security detail. He was fatalistic about that. He kind of told people, look, if somebody's going to get me, they're going to get me. There's nothing we can do. He didn't trust the security people to protect him in any case, which was a good call because it was very likely a security guard who made some of the shots that, you know, hit him. The security issue, it bothered Bobby because he just knew. He's like, if they're going to get me, they're going to get me, and no amount of security is going to make a difference. And maybe he was right, maybe he was wrong. Maybe if he'd had a private security force, they could have protected him. We'll never know. Thanks for the call, Bruce. What about J. Edgar Hoover's role in this and his role in ordering the destruction mm-hmm. of evidence? Hoover didn't order the destruction of any evidence, just to be clear. That was the LAPD. The LAPD ordered the destruction of the evidence they had collected. After the trial was over, they burned the door frames. They burned 2,400 photographs in a hospital incinerator. That was the LAPD's call. Hoover was very curious about this and I talk in my book about how the CIA was blackmailing Hoover at the time of the investigation. And Hoover had talked to one of the people who knew one of the people involved. And Hoover had said, yes, I know it was that guy's operation, but I'm powerless against the CIA. But Hoover was in a bind. And it's it's funny because in 1977, the city wrote the FBI because the FBI had photographed the pantry after the the wood paneling of the door frames was pulled off and the posts of the doors were exposed with the bullet holes in them. And the FBI had photographed them and labeled them bullet holes, not possible or probable, just flat-out bullet holes. Well, this really concerned the city. And they wrote in 1977, this is the tail end of all the investigations, Thomas Kranz was finishing up his in special counsel, you know, report to try and tie up all the loose ends of conspiracy. And this was one they couldn't tie up. So they wrote the FBI and they said, you know, you called these bullet holes. And if you had labeled them possible or probable bullet holes, we could all kind of go back to bed. But you didn't. And so if those were bullet holes, we should be looking for another shooter. Exactly. Lisa, i got to take another time out. Come back, finish up with Lisa Peace, A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Stay with us.
Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. All right, last call to the phones for Lisa Peace, the author of A Lie Too Big to Fail, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, 416-360-0740, that's in the greater Toronto area, the GTA, and toll-free from just about anywhere, 1-866-740-4740. Again, 1-866-740-4740. I know we're focusing on Robert F. Kennedy, but um, with this peace, or this Truth and Reconciliation Committee, what about the Little family uh, in terms of Malcolm X? Have they signed on? What about the Little family? Well, that Malcolm X is—I guess that's his his his, uh, oh, oh, his real name. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yes, uh, one of is this the granddaughter? I think one of the granddaughters of Malcolm X has signed. You know her name right now, but yes, one of those family members as well. And of course, Munir Sirhan was willing to sign on as well because you know he was a family member of the state too. In fact, I dedicated my book book to both. Whoops. We're sorry. Because of technical difficulties, we are unable to... Okay, we've lost... uh, Lisa, can you get her back uh, quickly, uh, Faz? And we will uh, try to finish up. Lisa Peace has just dropped off the line. And then we lost our caller. All right. Uh, Let me give you the numbers again. 416-360-0740. And toll-free from out of town, 1-86740-4740. And we just have about four or five... Minutes left here, but we are trying to get Lisa, Lisa Peace. What's happening, Faz? Is she's not answering? Okay. Well, she's dropped off the line. Keep trying, please. Yeah. If you can. Uh, well, this has been fascinating. And, um, for me, uh, the, the, the takeaway is the blanks. No bullets in that Ivor Johnson eight shooter that Sirhan Sirhan was clutching in the pantry uh, at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. I had not heard sort of this kind of definitive or definite evidence that he was firing blanks. It's fascinating. I think we have Lisa Peace back. Lisa, yes, I don't there? know what happened there. Well, you're, you're you're just cutting a little too close to the bone for somebody, somebody perhaps. Oh, maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> So uh, I was asking about the little family, Malcolm X's family. You said one of the granddaughters has signed on. Uh, and then you, you were mentioning about the, the dedication of the, to, of the book, and that's when your line started to go a little wonky. Oh, yeah, sorry. I had dedicated my book to both Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and Munir Sirhan, the two family members who really you know, have done the most to try and find the truth out about those events. Because I, I wanted to bring Munir in, too, because... It isn't just the killed that matter. I honestly believe Sirhan was innocent again after 20... I didn't start there, by the way. That's not where I started when I started researching. I assumed he was guilty. I just didn't know how guilty or to what extent. But it wasn't until, you know, about 10, 15 years into the research, I'm like, I'm not sure this guy even knew what he was doing. I'm not sure he really he was anything more than a pawn. And now I'm 100% convinced of that, and readers will make up their own mind based on the evidence, you know, presented on that point, but uh, but I want you to think of him as another victim of the assassinations of the 60s. Here's a guy who's 24 years old at the time. He's about to turn 75. He's been in jail two-thirds of his life for a crime he didn't commit and can't remember. 
Isn't that horrible? It's beyond horrible. It's, just, it's, it's, an it's absolutely horrible. unconscionable. Uh, is there anyone left alive, do you suspect, that still needs him to be in prison? Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to name a name on the air. No, I do. Oh, no. But, uh, again, sadly, I, I'm going to keep referring people to the book. You know, when it comes to the the ultimate sponsors and conclusions, um, not everybody is still alive. I, I think the top guy is dead, uh, but I do think there are others who have knowledge who are still around, and that's why that's why I like the model of a truth and reconciliation commission. I'm not seeking to put somebody in jail. I really just want to know what happened at this point. It's like they got away with it for this long. You know, it's, I don't like to think that there is no justice, but I am much more interested in the truth than I am in justice, if that makes sense. To me, truth is the ultimate justice. So if I had to choose, it's like if if I had to give somebody a pardon or immunity, if it were me, I would give it because I really want to know what happened. And is... I, I mean, again, this is kind of a rhetorical question, but is there a common thread that runs through all of these assassinations? Are we talking about the same people? <laughs> well, let's see. Oswald had no nitrate on his cheek, but when the FBI fired his rifle, they couldn't not get nitrate on their cheek. I think Oswald didn't kill JFK, uh, James O'Ray. You know, that the uh, package of incriminating evidence was placed 10 minutes before the the shooting, <laughs> the rifle that incriminated James O'Reilly was placed on the sidewalk 10 minutes before the shooting. James O'Reilly didn't kill Martin Luther King. Their hand didn't kill RFK. There is a pattern. And uh, the, the, these people are chosen. They're set up as patsies. The cover story is put together, kind of prepackaged and ready to go. You know, in Sirhan's case, it was the Palestinian immigrant, you know, upset over the sale of bombers to Israel. You know, they give them these ready-made narratives that also just happen to benefit, for example, the CIA and their dealings in the world at those moments in time. Uh, you know, Kennedy, you know, was shot by, you know, one of Castro's stooges was the original story, and then they quickly changed that to the USSR, and then they quickly changed that to, oh, Lotus Assassin, because either one of those doors was, was too close to the fact that it was an actual conspiracy. So they learn quickly. Uh, in both the, the MLK case and the RFK case, in both of those cases, uh, an author came forward, offered his services to the defense team in exchange for a lucrative book contract. Uh, you know, there are other parallels that run through these cases. And in all of them, in all of them, there are CIA media assets. And this is something that really people need to understand. The reason we don't get the truth about these cases is that there are CIA people in the media shaping the narrative and others in the media don't want to go up against the leaders because once, just like when Inspector Powers said, look, it was one man and that's what we're doing and the LAPD fell in line, it's the same way in the media. Once the New York Times or the Washington Post speaks, often the other newspapers fall in line. They, they're afraid to go against each other. That makes it look like no one knows what they're talking about. So like, that's the story. We're going to all follow the same line. There's safety in numbers, as they say. There aren't a lot of brave, independent reporting outlets now, and there were there weren't a lot then. But it does seem like there were many more in the past. Now, with the media consolidation, there's like six companies that own almost everything you see and hear in the media. Fortunately, now we have blogs, we have Twitter, we have you know internet sources. And so the truth is is seeping out through all these other sources. 
but I'm not holding my breath that I'm going to see a major story on this on ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, Fox, MSNBC. They serve a different agenda. Well, I mean, what sort of mainstream media coverage are you getting with your book? Uh... Uh, how do I want to answer that? Because there is actually one mainstream outlet that's about to do a big story on it. So, uh, but aside from that one, zero. <laughs> Absolutely zero coverage. Where is, one has to ask, where is the, the intellectual curiosity? Yes. Well, and partly, again, it is a factor of time. Even good reporters, they have families. They have a day job. You know, they don't have time to look into these. They don't have, and they have intellectual curiosity on a number of topics, um, you know, just not the ones that matter to us. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. They That's have, the rub. You know, well, yeah, Lisa, yeah. listen. I mean, how many books on global warming have I read? I actually mm. really care about that and think it's super important, but I haven't had the time to read any good books on that. There you go. Because I've been focused on this side of the world. <laughs> well, thank thank God for, for you, uh, Lisa. And uh, thank you for hanging out for the last two hours. And uh, this is a, just one bombshell after another that you laid on us tonight. Thank you so much. Great meeting you. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Lisa Peace, A Lie Too Big to Fail, uh, available at uh, Amazon and uh, good bookstores everywhere. All right. My thanks to um, Faz and Albert and Ryan. Back next week with Gary Byrne from the U.S. Secret Service. He'll have some bombshells of his own, I'm sure. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home.